about your examination and then you're going into your ordination vows and so on and so forth. Uh, in the process, um, you're submitting um, things that you may take exception to or theological nuances that you need others to be aware of that you have this particular view of um, X. And because you have this particular theological view of X, it needs to be noted, it needs to be written out, it needs to be received by a governing body, it needs to be examined, and then you are quizzed and questioned on it if that's an appropriate exception to your vows or not. If that's appropriate theological position for you to take, or if it's erring, and if it's erring, how erring, uh, do you receive your ordination or, or not? Um, the process often involves, I say all that to say this, that um, I, I, from my short amount of experience, um, the, the theological issue that comes out oftentimes of what a, a ordinate, a candidate, wants to take exception to or to be noted to a governing body of ministers, um, the exception that he takes, it tends to be the issue of Sabbath. So it becomes this issue where in this room right here as well, if we were to ask, what are your views of Lord's Day or your issue of Sabbath keeping? Um, what, what do you think of it? Would we all agree on our view of the Sabbath? Um, would, would we all agree? Would we recognize it the same? Would we practice it ethically, morally, uh, biblically, and practically the same? Would we do so? Um, the, again, the, the, I think out of the examinations I've seen, um, I think that is the only, uh, that is, I guess, the highest percentage of nuance that a candidate and an ordinate wants known, that he, he takes exception to particular views of the Sabbath. And then when you, when you say something like, oh, I, this is how I view Sunday, or this is how, what I think is appropriate to perform and do on Sunday, then it's a ton of different scenarios and exceptions that people take. If I were to ask you in here, what do you think it's appropriate for you to do today? Well, what, what, what do you say? You'd be like, anything, I don't care. Or would you be like, well, I don't think almost anything. Uh, uh, where, and then everything in between. So what I want to do today is, uh, with our text here, is kind of come at the, the, the point of saying, how do you get to a conversation about Sabbath as a Christian in the New Testament, in the New Covenant? How do you get to talking? And, and maybe by introduction, some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about as far as the issue of Christian Sabbath. That there is such a thing, or maybe I'm convinced there isn't such a thing, or how do I handle it, and what's permissible, and what's required within the idea of a Christian Sabbath. Where does the conversation even come from? So this morning, obviously, you see it here in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. That's going to be my argument to you this morning. I want to I lay a foundation to you of where do you get way out here in progressive revelation. So you're going from Genesis, and you're reading your Bible, all the way to Revelation. How are we standing out here, as you'd say, kind of in this New Testament section, here we stand as a church in the New Covenant era. How do we here talk about Sabbath that seems to be here? How do, how do, how do we do so? so um, and is it appropriate for us to do so? So I'm going to argue up front that here within this text, Genesis 2, 1 through 3, is why you should be thinking through Sabbath. So, so that, that's going to be my persuasion to you in the room who don't think Sabbath or, or, or don't think that Sunday, Lord's Day, is any way to be conducted in your behavior in any manner distinct or different than any other day of the week. I, again, so my, my point with the introduction, once again, is to say, this is an issue where if I sat on a governing body watching ordinance, 
That would be the issue that would constantly be popping up is an individual's view of the Sabbath. Why is that important? Well, as a Christian minister, he's going to conduct certain business on what is considered Christian Sabbath and, and, and how he conducts his life away from the pulpit and his time with his family and what he then, like I am this morning, would exhort those within his assembly how to conduct themselves also on Sabbath. So, so that's a key issue for ministers. What is your view of this? Well, I have take an exception to Sabbath. How do you take exception? So on and so forth. What I, Adam, am going to do this morning is what I hope to do is argue for why you need to be thinking about Sunday. You, you need to be thinking about it. You need to. Now, again, at the end, I'm going to tackle then three, what I think to be, uh, again, through short-lived experience. Only been in ministry now. Uh, we're, we're serving in our 11th year. So, uh, again, limited experience in only 11 years of ministry. But, again, within that scope of 11 years, if I were having this conversation with even the guys at Calvin Club, we've had some vigorous conversations within Calvin Club about Sabbath. And what is your view of it, and is it appropriate or not? What was Calvin's view of it? What should our view of it? What was the Lord's view of it? So on and so forth. There's three, I think, um, constant questions that come up when you're in a conversation about Sabbath. I want to tackle those three, but I want to tackle them at the end, because what I really want to do is um, I'm probably anticipating most of your questions about Sabbath. Like I said, there's only so many of them that have really the same essence to all of them. No matter the nuance, the essence is the same. We're going to tackle those three at the end. What I want to do is I really want to convince you first. Before you ask me a question about it, I want to put the burden back upon you. Have you thought about it? I'm hoping to persuade you to think about it with me, at least for the next few minutes that we're together, and hopefully to persuade you to think about it a little bit longer. How so, again, we see it here in the text. I want to build my argument with you. So if you'll notice in the passage right away, you notice um, where the text begins, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. So that's that's the key, right? So at the very beginning, what are we learning in chapter 2? After we've worked through here at Redeemer for a few months now, chapter 1, day after day after day after day after day after day, chapter 2 opens up this way, thus... You are now to conclude the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. So every bit of it, everything in the, in the ecosystem that is necessary for habitable earth with man and woman, it is done. It's set up. And notice verse 2 right away. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on it. Now, Look at the very last phrase of verse 3. God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So think about it this way. So far, where my argument is going, where where I want you to think with me this morning about Sabbath, is right here we see so far everything in the cosmos is completed, finished, fine, done, boom. His willful actions of created order are done. He has yet another willful act or another willful choice that he makes within the text. The very next choice that he makes. It's the willful act to enter into rest. 
Now, I, I want to stress to you willful act. That is, that is, this is what he chose to do out of everything left. Right? So, so everything is completed. Everything is perfect. Everything is, as he said earlier in the text, and we'll get there in just a moment, everything is very good. And so what is my next move? My next willful move is to enter into rest. Now, God's entering into willful rest. I'm going to press. I, I hope I, I, I'm not pressing too hard so that, because all of you are like, hey, we're there. We already observed Sabbath. Right. I know you do. No. But, and then the laughs. Right. But I'm going to persuade you. I'm going to persuade you. That God's willful act of entering to rest will be evident. That there is an ethical or what we could call moral application for all the creatures of his creation. There is an ethical or moral application for all of his creatures by virtue of the willful act of himself entering into rest. Consider my first step, that throughout the creation narrative, so we've been here, in, like I said, a couple of months now, a few months now, working through day, day after day, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, and each passage in that text has given us a basic framework for our sense of time, right? So we're together now. I've got you. The door is locked at the back of the church. No one can escape. I've got you there. You and I are inhabiting that same space in the text. We have gotten from that text our basic concept or framework for calculating time. That would be the argument. Now, if I threw that out and everyone's like, okay, good, he's got rid of that. We're all back to the way that we thought before. No, 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 wait, no. Because if I said something different about the creation days, we'd be in a brawl in here. So we all admit, yes, we have tracked the days to get a conception of time. And how it passes. Whether, again, we're not going to debate it. Whether you think a day is this long, day that long, day, day whatever. It, it's irrelevant to the point of what I'm making. Is that we have all, regardless of how we parse each piece, we have taken the whole as a concept for a framework of time. So we're here. So by the time we get to where we are now, right? So, so from morning and evening, morning and evening, well, now I've messed up. Morning and evening day, morning and evening day, morning and day. We got that, that's how time works. So by the time that we get here, we get to the end of the creational work of God. What do we learn about time? We learn to measure it by what we'd call a single week as a unit of time, right? That, that, we, we all agree upon that. Seventh day. What have we learned from that? Well, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, day seven. What does day seven mean when he's completed and entered into rest? Well, we can see from that as human beings, we receive from that how to measure a single unit of time, a week. There's seven days. One week equals one unit of time. So in other words, in this creation story, so far, we are provided with the paradigm for calculating the passage of time. How do you calculate time? Remember, uh, earlier we saw where God cast the heavenly bodies into the skies. The, the larger a light to rule the day, the lesser to rule the night. And then there's this repeated phrase throughout the text. There was morning, there was evening. Passage of time, one day. 
there was passage of time, one day, morning and evening. So we're regulated in time by these heavenly bodies, right? That's what they're cast into the skies to do. So at minimum, you and I right now share in the seventh day one thing. There's a single week of time, right? Now's where I'm going to press with you to keep going. I want to urge you that it's more here in day one through day seven. It is more than mere calculating that's being provided here. Yes, calculated. Sun, moon, sun, moon, sun, moon. Got it. I can calculate a week now. I got it. That's a unit of time. But it's more than calculating that he's giving you. He's giving you more than that. Rather, God's willful act of resting provides more than calculating the passage of time, but rather to you and to I. I'm going to persuade you in the next few moments. I know it. That the paradigm here provides us with the way to properly experience time and the proper way to respond to time in our lives. So, right? so I've made, I've made a, a, a move in my, my argument. So, so on the one hand, you, you agree, we all agree, because we're all sane persons. We all agree that we all have a calculation of time, days one through seven in the text. Day one, day two, day. yeah, calculating. I'm with you, Adam. There's a calculation here that we're watching time come and go. Now I've moved from you calculate, now I've moved over to, yes, it's calculating. That's how you calculate time. But there is here a moral instruction of how you ought to not just calculate time, experience and respond to time. Notice how we get there. Look with me just briefly in the text of how we are to experience. God is giving us, by his willful act of entering into rest, he is giving you and I, creatures, a proper paradigm for how we, you and I, experience time. Not simply calculate it. Hey, I'm going to have a birthday next year. Yes, calculation, sure. But how are you going to experience your life in time? This is going on here. Look at verse 31 as we begin. Um, Verse 31, chapter 1. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was, there's that calculation and passage of time uh, uh, indicator in the text. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So that, yep, it's teaching us calculation of the passage of time. It picks up in chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. Everything's done. And on the seventh day, we're still calculating time. But now, again, it's going to increase into how we experience, not simply calculate, but experience time. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his works that he had done. Now, you notice I stop. If you were looking at the text, you'll notice I stopped at verse 2. And what we're working on is 2, 1 through 3. But I stopped at chapter 2. Why? If we stop at verse 2, what we learn is what God did on the seventh day. Right? And maybe you're calculating it that way. You're trying to think, okay, I'm learning in this text what God has done. How are you bridging from what God has done to what I must do? How are we getting there? Right? Because if we stop at the end of verse 2, we realize one thing in the text. God entered into rest. 
His willful act was for himself to enter into rest. Now, again, I want to make a, a, a small little note here that God is always at rest. Right? He is not tilling and working and toiling as he were a man, even in the creation of all things. He is always eternally at rest. What it is is that he is no longer in the operations of creating new bodies within the earth. Right Now it's handed over to what we call providence. He is governing all things that he has made. That's the sense of what we mean that God rested on the seventh day. So in that sense, in verse 2, so far you're with me, it, that we're given a response or, or, or a word on what God has done. Not necessarily what we or creatures are doing, but we see that God has rested. But notice verse 3 is then we move as the text expresses more clearly what it means that he himself indeed has rested. He takes additional action toward the day itself as a unit of time. So, so look with me here for a second. Maybe, maybe this will be helpful. If you were looking at a calendar, and you're looking at Monday or Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, Saturday, you see your days. You, you see the image with me. There they are. And, and, and God has had actions taken towards each in, within each sphere of time. We saw that from the text, morning and evening, 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 activity, 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 which corresponds. Then he's looking at this column, the seventh day, the seventh day as a sphere of time. In your mind, you're seeing it in as a calendar vertically laid out. There's a sphere of time. And God is taking action toward that sphere of time as a unit of time. What is he going to do with that unit of time? He blesses it. And he sanctifies it. Now, see, that's different than just what he did on it, right? Because that, that would be like writing into the, the calendar what you're going to do on that day, just like we all do. The calendar's hanging in the kitchen. Don't forget, Adri, tell me about this. I've got to do it on Wednesday. Would you mind writing that down? Sure, sure. Hey, you know, you've got to do this today. Right, yes, right. So I know what I'm doing within that day, but it's not simply what he did within that day. He designated something about that day that he didn't say about any other day. Do you see? Seventh day isn't simply what he did on it. He designates something about it. Notice how he, we, we get there, verse 3. So God blessed. Okay, let's join back in the argument of the text. Look at verse 2. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his works that he had done. Boom. We have his action taken. Fine, we got it. It's written in on the calendar. Wait, follow me into verse 3. And so God blessed the seventh day. Further, look at what his secondary comment is here also. What he did about the unit of time itself. He made it holy. Or, or what we'd say, he sanctified it. Now, now think about that. What did he make holy? If you're reading the text, what did he make holy? The day. Right? Not his activity of resting, but he made the day as a sphere of time something. He blessed it, and he made that sphere of time holy. Now, now why? How, how are we sure? Look at the, the final comment of verse 3. Because he, he did that. He blessed it, 
and he made it holy. Why? Because on it, God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. You see, the argument that I'm making, and I think you're tracking, is that here we are instructed in how we, that is the creature, is to conceive of the seventh day itself as a sphere of time. That's how we're supposed to conceive of it. God designated this day, this sphere of a unit of time that we confess together. Remember, I locked the door a long time ago. We're all trapped in here in the same argument. We learn time from Genesis 1-1 all the way to day 7. All of us are admitting that. But somehow, when we get to the seventh day, we immediately switch and think, well, we're learning about what God did on it. No, 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 no. We're still learning about time by what God says about it. And, and so here in the seventh day, he says something about day seven, and that is that we as creatures might learn of what day seven symbolizes as a sphere of time. Let me push you just a little bit further. Consider carefully with me. Just, just think about the text with me. Just very carefully think for a moment. Think how he did not sanctify. That is, he did not make it holy. He didn't set it apart as unto himself, the heavens, the earth, or any other creature. Do you see that? Think about all the grandeur of creation. All that he had created. All the heavenly bodies. Even the sphere of what we'd call the heavens themselves. Notice he himself does not sanctify the heaven. He does not sanctify the earth or any other creature upon the earth. He sanctifies within our entire conceptual time work, or framework of time the seventh day alone. He sanctified that sphere of time. What does it mean uh, that God sanctified it? Or that you see there in the text as it's translated, he made it holy. What does that mean? If you're thinking with me, you're thinking, I'm not sure because that does matter that I grasp that God made that sphere of time holy. And if I'm to recognize that sphere of time, I ought to recognize very specifically something that God said about that sphere of time as he describes it to me. And so far, what I recognize about this sphere of time is it was holy. So if I'm to look at that sphere of time and receive the information of that sphere of time, I need to know what that means, that he designated it holy. And in the broadest sense of the term, it is set apart unto him. Right? We, you and I, as believers, we learn that from our Lord, that we have been set apart unto God through the truth. That is, we have been uh, uh, made holy unto him. That is, we are his vessels. We are for him and for his usage, for his purposes to perform. We are for his glory. So then we learn that that same sense of designation of something made separate unto God is what we learn about the seventh day. This is important. Uh, I want you to grasp it. That again, he makes the day as a unit of time holy. Um, I, let me tell you why it's important that you grasp what, what I'm putting forward. If you'd hear my argument fairly and weigh it out in your heart and your mind about your own moral and ethical behavior. Is some people will come along and say something along the lines of like what we're learning here in Genesis 2 is um, can't be what Adam's saying is Sabbath principles of Christian living because where we see this codified is out here in, uh, and I'm, you're looking at the Bible now, and, and out here in the giving of the law to Israel. 
Right? So some people, I don't know if you're familiar with that, and maybe you think that way, is like, well, I, well, Adam, you're talking here as a Christian in the New Covenant era, something back here in what was given and codified to Israel and a particular theocratic peoples at a time in biblical history that simply doesn't apply to us right now. I, I, I'm actually not making that argument at all. What I would say is that, that that's the wrong understanding of when you learn about Sabbath. Sure, you see it somewhere codified, in the giving of the Ten Commandments to Israel. You remember the, the two stone tablets. You learn about it there, and you're like, that's, that, that's to them, not to me. Wrong, 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 wrong. Never mind, we'll talk about that for another day. But what I'm trying to say is here, it's not a part of Old Testament law. Please, Christians, I, I want you to think with me on this issue. It's not a part of Old Testament law. It's a part of the creational fabric. That is well before the giving of a law. That's my argument to you. This is a creational ordinance. It is not simply something given to Israel in the law that now somehow, again, another argument for another day, doesn't apply to you. It's irrespective. We can take the law section right here and we can just pull it out of the conversation. We're just talking about creation ordinance. So see, you're a part of creation and so is the sphere of sanctified time designated to God. Sabbath observance is grounded in the fabric of creation itself. It, has, it, it, it is just simply codified in the law, but it is given you in creation itself. Put it back here for just a moment with Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. I have a series of questions I want to ask and answer with you. Just what, this, what does this mean? Because sometimes we can be under threat, right, of taking um, Genesis 2, 1 through 3, pulling it out and having a Sabbath conversation. There's so, there so much to talk about about this. And the, and the problem is we can come here and be like, oh, Gary, Adam's about to rip down on Sabbath principle. Take this text, make it. Okay, right, right. So we can, we can look at it like that way. Like, okay, we're, we're, how are we getting the Sabbath? How are we exactly getting there? So fine, let's do that. Let's, I'm arguing it's a part of creational ordinance. The very fact of creation is that there is Sabbath time designated. He blessed this sphere of time within which you live as a creature, and he's dedicated unto himself and for his usage. Let me explore this with you together, you and I together. What does this mean for Adam and Eve then? Have you thought about it? What did it mean for Adam and Eve, the very first two human beings of God's created order? So what does it mean for them at minimum? So remember, we're at this place in creation where there are two human beings so far. At minimum, what it means for Adam and Eve. Think with me just for a moment. Their very first full day of experiential life was dedicated to worship and rest. Do you see? They, they, were, they were created, so, so the argument is somewhere along the lines that Adam is created perhaps a.m. Again, we're, we're weighing out what God can do in a moment and how he does through means. So I'm not sure that, you know, if Adam was created before lunch, uh, you know, when we conceive of a 24-hour period. I'm not sure how we would designate what God did and when. Nonetheless, by order, we're looking at Adam was created, and then from Adam there's this period within the text that we receive through faith that Adam was asleep. And that then, again, why, why the need for rest, what, what God is all teaching, there are many things there. But we'll just take the broadest picture. Adam is at rest, God takes a rib from Adam and makes from man woman. And we receive this, so, so we'd say in our conception of time, it was maybe Adam in the morning and Eve in the afternoon. 
or whatever that passage of time. Adam was here. There was a time of rest when he was asleep. God put him in deep rest. And then there was Eve. And Adam was there throughout the morning being like, here's an animal, here's an animal, here's an animal, here's an animal. There's no one here for me. By the time he goes through his rest period, then here is this Eve, this one who shares in my likeness. Evening time, perhaps, with Eve. So think about that. Day six, so their very first full life experiential day is lived on Sabbath. Again, what does this mean? But that their first full experiential day was dedicated to worship and rest before God. For that was the sphere of time that God made holy. Another question, though, perhaps, is what we think of Adam and Eve. is how do we know that Adam and Eve were instructed in the meaning of the Sabbath? How do we know that Adam and Eve, because it's silent, right? We, we have them created, we, and I'm making the argument that their very first day is experiential life lived before God and Sabbath rest and worship. Because, again, it's not that Eve simply rested, but he, desi- he, he designated that time as a time sphere of experiential rest and worship. So if Adam and Eve are in that sphere of time by life's experience, they are to receive that time as a time of worship and rest. How do we know that they were effectively taught that or communicated that since it's quiet within the text? If you'll allow me, think with, we we go forward to Mark chapter 2. You don't have to turn there, but I'm just simply going to give it to you. You're familiar with the passage, but Mark chapter 2 Jesus says this, and you're familiar with this passage again, but he says, quote, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So, so clearly then, if, if the idea is that Sabbath rest was made for mankind, it clearly includes Adam and Eve. You notice our Lord didn't exempt Adam and Eve. Like, well, it wasn't made for them. It, it was made like, you know, later and it kind of developed through Israel's law. And then God gave it in the Ten Commandments and they figured it out. Now it's dedicated to man, not, not the other way. No, 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 no. He, he's, inclu- he's just simply saying this. Sabbath was made for man, period, mankind, not mankind for the Sabbath. Now, if he didn't exclude Adam and Eve, then we ought to be so persuaded that Adam and Eve, if not in a preeminent sense are included as the first of all mankind. Another interesting element here, um, and I'm going to try to keep moving. I'm going to try and keep going. But another interesting element is here. Maybe that would help clarify to you the thoughts of Cain and Abel. When you get to Cain and Abel, right, and you're like, okay, so there's these offerings that are presented, and then one is received and one is rejected. You're like, what's going on exactly with the, with the, with the you know, we don't have a lot of information about Cain's offering and Abel's offering and how this is going down and what was taking place and the severity of punishment and, and the idea of murder and what was all taking place in the text. A thought, have you, have, you, have you thought in your mind, by Sabbath you are instructed through Adam and Eve the idea of sacrifice at all? Have you asked that question? How did Cain and Abel come to the place where they would even understand the idea of bringing offerings? Again, because they've been instructed in in the role of Sabbath worship. Again, maybe you're like, ah, you have to come up with some way to grasp this text, right? They, They brought offering, and it's clearly silent as to where did they generate the idea of worship through offering. Again, I'm saying that through our Lord's comment, Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. This, this clearly includes Adam and Eve, if not in a preeminent sense, and it's evidenced by Cain and Abel's acts of worship 
in bringing their offerings. There is yet another comment. Let me make one more comment on the idea of how do we know that they were instructed in Sabbath. Luther, Martin Luther, that is, he makes the argument, which I I think is very interesting, and I I put it before you to consider, is that um, here in the very first day of Sabbath, this is where we learn about preaching, um, because his argument is Adam and Eve were instructed in the word of the Lord, in the garden covenant ceremony, on the day of the Sabbath. So his argument being, that is where the word of God was preached to them. Where and when? On Sabbath day, the very first day of worship and rest. They receive their instruction. Don't eat of this tree. And I've given you every other good thing. Subdue and work in the earth. So they were given uh, uh, instruction from the word of the Lord on ethics and morality, behavior, cultivation, subduing, and obedience. Effectively, Luther's argument is God preached them a sermon on the seventh day. Theologically speaking, Let me press you just a little bit. Why was their first day to be a Sabbath? Do you think about that? Why was their first day to be Sabbath? Right? Because it's not that he, 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 um, you know, we see the deliberate act of God in creating everything schematically perfect. So from day one through day six, everything was schematically balanced and perfect. And Adam and Eve were able then to be in a hospitable location, which is he placed them in the garden Um, But why was their first day to be a day of sphere of time whereby they experience that sphere of time is dedicated to God and worship? Because that is your chief end. And that is my chief end. That is the chief end of all men and all women. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That was their instructional element on day one. Not like, you know, when your life is complete, then finally, after you're done sowing your wild oats, lay down your life in some sort of uh, sacrificial manner as you conceive of it. But we're instructed in the creation of the first man and the first woman unto our ultimate end. This is what we were made for. And that's why they had their very first full life experience as those who were dedicated in a sphere of time to worship and rest before God. Finally, then, I maybe have let it slip, but what does this mean for you and I? Let me push it a little bit further, and then I'm finally going to close with the three questions that I think are helpful to consider uh, of this. But let me say uh, of Sabbath rest in days one through three, in a sanctifying sphere of time, what does that mean for you and I? I'm going to give it to you this way at a minimum. So, so I'm, 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 I, I'm, for me, and I don't get it perfectly. I mean, I have uh, dilemmas in my life uh, over Lord's Day. I just do. I, I, I can't, and I've revealed this to the guys at Calvin Club. That I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm as challenged by it as uh, may, I, maybe I'm more challenged by it than some of you. But I think it's maybe together we're all challenged by it. Uh, uh, thinking through um, what exactly the applications are appropriate for our family on Lord's Day. So let me give it to you at this. If I've locked the door and everybody's in here and we're stuck in this situation right now, and I could so persuade you, and I don't have another two hours, but I know if I did, I could get you there. There would not be one last skeptic in here. I know it. But I just don't have two more hours. Um, Because if you're thinking, he hasn't thought of this. Yes, I have. Yes, I have. I'm still convinced of what I'm saying to you now. Um, 
at minimum. Minimum. So hopefully more, but at minimum. It means this. That we are herein being instructed on the ethics or morality of managing a single work week of time that is given us from God at minimum. How so? Again, you can't sit here and say no. I know you're not, but I'm just hypothetically creating a person who's saying no. You cannot. That person, hypothetically, they cannot because you've already admitted that you function just along with the text. There was morning and there was evening one day. If you admit that much, that we're receiving a concept of time at all, then at minimum, we are being here and told of time management in one unit of our experience called a week. You have to admit that. Now, let me suggest this. It works both ways. Work ethics should rightly reflect Sabbath instruction. Both ways. This way, let me just say it. On the one hand, here, here is, so, so I'm saying work ethics is where we're all at, underneath this umbrella called Sabbath. We're under this creational ordinance, not an Old Testament law, a creational ordinance, that there is a sphere of time within a unit of week that is designated wholly unto God. We're here under this, this idea. Now, as I begin to work, I need to face my work ethics in two ways. Number one, man should not work unceasingly and thereby deny God's good gift of rest and neglect his worship. So let me say it again. Man should not work unceasingly and thereby deny God's good gift of rest and neglect his worship. On the other hand, on the other hand of the same ethics, man must not violate the Sabbath by not working the other six days of the week either. Sabbath is functioning both ways in our ethics. That is, another way to violate God's good creation is to be lazy and rebel against his call to work and subdue the earth. So much so in this paradigm are we herein instructed that a man who does not work violates the Sabbath just as much as the man who works without stoppage. This is when we move it from what God did to the idea of God's designation. He blesses it, and he sanctifies it. Finally, I want to address three questions. I, 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 maybe I, I'm torn if I should or shouldn't. I should, see, I should have preached this in at least three sermons. At least. Now I'm torn. I'm going to simply I'm, I'm going to shortchange myself. And allow you to arm yourselves. I was, I'm going to read the questions. And I'm going to give the answers. And I'm not going to prove if you are a naysayer. How you're just woefully wrong. But let me just read them. And, and you, because I want you to hear them. And I want you to chew on them. I, I want you to think on them. But I don't have time. So let me just end it. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to land this plane. But I'm going to land it with you listening. Three often asked questions in regard to Christian Sabbath. Number one, if it's grounded in creation itself, as I'm arguing, yes, Adam's saying yes, without a doubt. If it's grounded in creation itself, then, number one, why don't we observe it on Saturday? I knew you were asking. And the answer is, oh, man, I just read it. Because when the Lord of the Sabbath was raised, he appeared to the apostles and they worshipped him on the first day of the week thus establishing what the New Testament calls Lord's Day. 
as the day of worship and rest in the Christian Sabbath. Three quick references for that. Acts 20, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. Revelation 1, verse 10. Acts 20, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Revelation 1, 10. The day has changed, but the moral instruction belonging to the fabric of creation has not. It has not. Number two, if Lord's Day is the Christian Sabbath, then are Christians who don't worship on Sunday in sin? I mean, we might know of people who have a Saturday night service. Is that a sinful thing? Since we're, uh, my argument is Lord's Day is now the Christian Sabbath, which we know to be the first day of the week, and the, day the Lord was raised and they appeared to the uh, apostles and they worshiped him. Then are those who worship on Sunday in sin? The answer is no. Because to be fair, Sunday wasn't even an official day of rest until Constantine established it in 321. So we need to be careful with our understanding of the first century church context. However, the, the question is this. If we know that the biblical text clearly lays out Lord's Day as the day of New Testament gathering, which is the fulfillment of Christian Sabbath, what is most biblically expedient? How do I conform so closely with the biblical text, given my providence? For instance, one quick for instance, and I know I'm going long, but one quick for instance, uh, the uh, churches who are persecuted, the Chinese church, are they in sin because they worship whenever they can within an allotted period of time, and it's not Lord's Day? The answer is obviously no. But the issue is here are you in this providence, and in what way can you in good order conform to the biblical text as closely as possible given your providence, not someone else's? What's most expedient? Finally, in the third question um, is this, and I will close. What am I commanded to do and commanded to avoid? I just want to persuade you this way. It's not at all about what you can and cannot do. And I'm not just saying because you're like, I bet. No, 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 no absolutely. Think, think about it like this. You have been set free from sleeping in. Do you realize that? You've been set free from the bondage of your bed. You've been set free from having to do X. You don't have to be in bondage to the self to achieve something. You've been set free and summoned and welcomed into coming. If we look at it like, well, this sounds like law, like I have to give something up, you don't understand what you've been set free from. You could go right back out to shopping at Giant Eagle at 1030 in the morning. Or you can rejoice you've been set free from the grocery store and summoned to come, to behold, to sing, to give, to fellowship, to receive, to be nourished. Or push a grocery cart around the store. Let's pray. Father, pray that you would give us a, a sense of understanding and grace.